0: It's especially something like the Big Bash. If you go up there for three hours and you're not being yourself, you're going to cock it up and you're going to cock it up quickly and people are going to know about it. So I thought, shit, I've said the wrong thing here. Um, this is really, really bad and this is going to cause me major grief. Pad
1: up. It's the Australian Cricket Podcast. And here are your hosts. Hello everyone and welcome to the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm your host Andrew Menzel, aka Meners, and I'm thrilled to be presenting the second episode of the Autumn Series for 2017. My second guest for this year's Autumn Series is Mark Howard from Channel 10. Howie is one of my favourite cricket broadcasters and many of you will be familiar with his work on Channel 10's Big Bash coverage and his excellent podcast, the Howie Games podcast, where he interviews some of Australia's best and biggest stars. Talking to Howie, he's the sort of bloke that makes you want to be a better person, the way he approaches his craft and his work. So it was a real thrill chatting with him, and I hope you enjoy it. Hi Howie, thanks for coming on the Australian Cricket Podcast. How are you?
0: Yeah, I'm great, menes. It's uh, really nice of you to invite me on. I've listened to the podcast plenty before. It's a great podcast, but I find it a bit bizarre because I'm normally the one asking the questions. So hopefully we don't bore the audience too much and it's a new experience for me, but thanks for having me on.
1: Well, this is a reverse Howie Games. You know? I have put you on the hot seat and uh, I'm really glad you could come on. There's a couple of areas of mutual interest, uh, the Big Bash obviously being one. You work on that and also... Your fantastic podcast, The Howie Games. But before we get into all that, when I listen to The Howie Games, I think that you come across as having a really good moral compass. When you, in your introduction to Kevin Peterson, you said that you were taught to judge people by the way they treat you and not go into things with preconceived ideas. I was just wondering where that sort of grounding comes from. Where, where, what sort of, where did that come from, that moral compass?
0: I think because working in the media, everybody has an opinion on everybody and it can be slightly unfortunate at times, but I think it's actually something my, my grandfather used to tell you, say to me, just, "I oh, might just take people how they are with you, because especially when you're dealing with, um, he taught me that as a young man, but when you're dealing with um, the Kevin Petersons of the world or the Michael Clarks or whoever they are, if, if you're dealing with elite athletes, people, for whatever reason, will have negative things to say about them. So if you go down there and sit there and think that, you know, I hear Kevin Peterson is this or Ricky Ponting's this or Michael Clark's this, it completely clouds what you're doing. So I think it's only fair if someone's going to give you the time valuable time to sit down there and have a chat with you that you need to go in and, with an open mind and, and you really can manage. You can only treat people how they treat you um, and if people come across a bit gruff, well, you know, you, you might be a little bit more standing back on them but if you go in there thinking, well, this person's not going to give me anything, well, they won't give you anything. If you think they're going there thinking they're arrogant, you'll come away thinking they're arrogant. So, yeah, I just try and keep a very open mind to it uh, and I find that that works best. Treat the person with respect and, and away you go because you've got to realise the people you're talking about if they're giving you an hour of their time it's a massive favor that Mm. they're doing you so you sort of need to repay that back a little bit i think
1: yeah i think it comes through in your interviews the way you really try and give people a chance to tell their story and you don't try and put your own biases on them and I guess you seem really honest in your work with the Big Bash and the podcast that it is really you up there. Some people, I think, put on a bit of a front when they're in the media game, but I I get the feeling and... I think other Australians see it as well that this is how he just take me for what I am, like it or don't like it.
0: Well, I hope so. It's certainly a, a fellow that I worked with a long time ago, Neil Kearney, taught me a lot of things. He's a great man, Neil. People, A lot of people won't know his work, but he's he's the best reporter, journalist I've ever worked with. And he, and he said to me very early on when I was starting to work on Camry, he said, mate, if you're not yourself, you won't be able to sustain it. So just be yourself and people will like it or lump it. But, but I still listen Uh, Like, when I listen to myself, sometimes I think, yeah, it sounds okay. Other times I listen to it and think, gee, small things like when I drop G's on the end of a sentence, when I say, gonna, instead of going to, or, you know, I tell my kids now, don't drop your G's. So sometimes you've got to be careful you don't be too relaxed, especially on the telly, because I go back and listen and and I cringe at certain times when, you know, I'm... I've got a quite a strong Australian accent, and that, that comes through. And at times, I cringe when I hear that. But it's especially something like the Big Bash. If you go up there for three hours and you're not being yourself, you're going to cock it up, and you're going to cock it up quickly, and people are going to know about it. So, yeah, you learn though, manners that you're not going to be able to please all the people all the time. So, at the end of the day, first you try and please your boss, second you try and please yourself, and hopefully that cuts through with the audience. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But yeah, you need you need to be honest because you, you can't keep it up otherwise.
1: I think it's a refreshing approach, and I wouldn't worry about dropping your Gs. I would say most <laughs> Aussies wouldn't notice. I hate, it.
0: <laughs> I hate it. I hate it when I hear it back. If I'm, if I'm in the Qantas Club the next day on the way in the Big Bash, and they've got highlights on, and I say something like that, it makes me cringe. But anyway, that's life.
1: Okay, so let's start with the Big Bash. Channel 10 won the rights for the comp in 2013. Did you know straight away that you wanted to get on the coverage of the Big Bash?
0: Oh, 100%. <laughs> Um, Yeah, the only way I can say to that to you is 100%. I've always, cricket's been my favourite sport. Um, Growing up playing it, I never really thought I'd get the opportunity to work on it. It was always a Channel Nine-based product in Australia, and I certainly haven't played 100 Test matches to qualify to work on that. So (laughs) I never ever I never considered that I would get the opportunity to work on it. So when it came out that we had it, yeah, absolutely, it was um, it was extraordinary. I still didn't know whether I'd get an opportunity, but I was certainly more of an opportunity than if it uh, if it had gone elsewhere.
1: So how did you get that opportunity? Did you have to audition? Did you have to put your cricket tragic? credentials together and present them to someone in Channel 10 show them your posters on the wall from when you were a kid (laughs) of Dino and that
0: no I didn't to be completely honest with you the, the executive producer of the cricket is a guy called David Barham he's a ripping boss because he has faith in you so he doesn't manage you how to do things, he'll give you a couple of points and say, all right, go and do it. And If he doesn't like how you do it, he will tell you that. But I've worked with him for a lot of years. I first met him, uh, we worked together on the volleyball at the Sydney Olympics in the year 2000 of all things when I was an assistant director on it and he was the executive producer and eventually he had me working on the AFL football down here on Melbourne, in Melbourne on a boundary role. and I did a lot of work on the footy for Channel 10. So, so when it came to pass that 10 had got the cricket, uh, knowing him and knowing him well, he knew I... Um, had a really good handle on the cricket, but he didn't know whether I'd be able to commentate on it. I didn't know whether I'd be able to commentate on it, and I guess at the time I wasn't really sure whether he'd give me the opportunity. I I knew I'd get some chance to work on the cricket, whether it was being on a boundary-style role, which I'd done on the footy in the past. I hadn't done a great deal of commentary. I'd I'd commentated on Ironman and and a few other small motorsport events, but certainly nothing of that um, size. So, you know, we just discussed it, and basically to be completely honest with you Menace, he said can you do it and what are you going to say if i've learned one thing in this business it's just say yes to anything and that that's sort of been my theme the whole way through right from we started if if they said to me you know we picked up lawn bowls can you can you do it i'll be like yep no problem and then you go and figure out how to do it and i very much said that yep i can do the cricket but I tell you what, when the bowler was coming in for the first ball, the big bash in the first season, I had no idea what was going to come out of my mouth. So David did show a lot of faith in me, which um, I'll always be eternally grateful for. Yeah, I think
1: for a lot of cricket fans, well, especially me included, when you started on the big bash, I'm not a big motorsport aficionado or or AFL fan. So I hadn't really seen much of your other work. So it seemed like you sort of came from nowhere. must have been nerve wracking getting up there, commentating on cricket with no sort of background in it.
0: Ah, oh, yeah, nerve wracking is one way of putting it. I guess you you like when you hear, you know, a, a singer saying that became a, a, an overnight sensation, and then you look back and they've done twenty three albums to that point. I guess I'd been working in sports television, in, in every sport you can imagine, in every role, from you know pulling cables around a motor racing track to directing it to reporting on it to starting to commentate on it to producing it to writing it. So yeah i guess when you're working on lower profile events then a lot of people aren't aware who you are but you have a very good grounding and i can sit in the big bash commentary box and know what everyone else is doing from the director to the producer to the commentators to the guys running the replays to the guys doing the graphics i've done all those jobs so that certainly helps but we did some rehearsals um not very many rehearsals it must be said we did some rehearsals at channel 10 um, and I came away from those still questioning whether I was going to be able to do it I, I certainly didn't walk in there and do the first rehearsal and thought yep this is going to come to me naturally um yeah I, I still i still had no idea how it was going to go and a lot of people still say that I still don't know how it's going <laughs> but yeah certainly certainly that first night
1: how did you come up then with the sort of uh, what style of cricket commentator you wanted to be. You know, I think we both grew up around the same age with the Channel 9 commentary box being a really big influence on on our childhoods and our, the way we interact with cricket. And, you know, I think subconsciously you sort of bring, I bring that into the way I approach cricket. But how did you sort of evolve your style?
0: It's a really good question, Andrew. Um, a, a lot of it, to be honest, evolves on air, but I grew up watching Channel 9 as well and, and my great fear which I look back on it now and think I shouldn't have been concerned about it but my great fear was we were going to be compared to Channel 9 who had done the world's best job on cricket and let's be honest I'm talking the world's best cricket coverage the world's best cricket commentators for 30 years so when you're stepping into that position to me it was like wow it's a bit of a poison chalice because people are going to compare us to Bill and Richie and Tony and Ciappelli and these legends of the game that we can't hope to compete with what they do so we had to provide an alternative and again Dave Barham just said to me we we did the first couple of rehearsals and he said listen mate your role here is to show people who the real Ricky Ponting is, show that he's a normal knockabout bloke, show that he's got a great sense of humour, show what type of man Adam Gilchrist is. Because especially with those two, all we'd seen is, especially Ricky, we'd seen him behind his helmet and we'd seen him as the Australian captain, an intense fella under pressure that didn't really give a lot away. But in getting to know him, we all certainly realised at 10, and with Gilly as well, that these are really funny knockabout blokes. So it was my job to try and show the personality of these guys. So that's not discussing how we're going to call ball by ball, but that was our general theme. Big Bash one for us. The first Big Bash was if people came away at the end of the year and said, gee, that Ricky ponty has got a good sense of humour, or gee, Adam Gilcross's a good bloke, or gee, that Mark Moore he's a quirky operator, then we'd done our job in a way. As far as the calling goes, it was probably a little bit more specific than that, but that's how we wanted to theme what we were trying to do.
1: I think it's a great formula for commentary, having that third person to draw the information out of the experts. I've often thought that could be in addition to test cricket, where you have three-man panels, but someone with a more journalistic background to bring the, the stories out and give their insights.
0: Yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting way of doing it because if the game is brilliant, all of that goes out the window. You don't need to do that. But if it's a slower game, sometimes it can become part sportsman's night, part, entertainment part comedy because you've got to remember we're, we're not just a sport product we have to be an entertainment product because if we were just a sport product, product only cricket fans would watch and that wouldn't be enough people watching it so we had to become an entertainment product pretty quickly i guess what you're saying is it works for us at 10 because you know in five years i have not offered one opinion on the big bash occasionally mark war will ask me well what do you think and and i'll say tongue in cheek who cares but if he really pushes me I, i'll tell him but i I don't, and I try and I just make sure I don't offer my opinion. But someone needs to ask these guys questions because if you've got three experts in there, three superstars, in sometimes I think you can end up getting three opinions that don't really form a discussion. They're just three different points. They get out there, and that's the end of that. So I, I think it works well um, having someone to just steer the conversation.
1: Yeah, it definitely at, does at,
0: in the middle of the cricket.
1: But you're saying that you don't bring your opinions forth. I've noticed no. that. Is that just because, you know, you're sitting next to someone that played 100 tests or and you feel your opinion's not as valid? Because, you know, if you've been watching so many games of the Big Bash for so long, you must have some elements to it, analysis that you'd like to give. Do you feel it's just something you want to steer away from?
0: Yep. Well, last year, I guess I did... You know, nearly 30 big bash games. I went to the Caribbean and did probably 30 games there. I did a tournament in Dubai, so I probably did 80 games of big ba- uh, 80 games of T20 cricket last year. So there's no doubt you. I watch things and I think, right, this is what's happening, or this is what I'd be doing next, or I, I can imagine this is what the captain's going to do. And you know, sometimes it happens. But really, does someone really? I look at it. The, who who cares that a bloke that played, you know, B or A grade cricket in the country? Who, you got Ricky Ponting there. Australia's second best Bradman, bat, batsman since Bradman. You've got Gilly who changed the game or Flemmor Junior or, or KP or McCullum. It's like I think it would be the height of arrogance for me to start offering my opinion on something. I just – I don't see that I, I'm there for. Like if you sat in front of the cricket with me now and we were watching the game on the couch having a couple of beers, mate, I wouldn't shut up. This is what I think is <laughs> going to happen. This is what's not going to happen. But, yeah, that's – um I think that would be an arrogant, ridiculous path for me to go down. Yeah, um, I think I work that's on changing the – I think that... uh, it, it, it may be. I'll never change. I will never um I'm the same in the AFL if I call a lot of games of footy and I never never offer my opinion. Um rightly or wrongly. That's well, just it's good. uh that's that's it's the good to be true it. to
1: yourself, Harry. If that's the way you feel then I reckon it's it's a good formula. It's worked so far, so it has, it has. And when you got Ricky Ponting and that sitting next to you, why not? Uh, well, let's talk about them. You said you had a um, a rehearsal, and I heard yep. you say in one of your podcasts that when you, when you padded up next to Punter and Junior and Fleming and Gilly, you felt like a bit of a fraud. How did you get over that? How did you come to grips with that feeling?
0: Especially, uh, to be completely honest with you, especially with Ricky, because I only knew him like you knew him as the Australian captain and, pretty serious and didn't suffer fools. Um, So I, I reckon it took probably the first whole season for, for Rick to be able to, trust me, you'd have to ask him, but I, I would have thought the first whole season before we'd spent enough time together. And now, I you know, obviously you're completely relaxed around him. I, I don't know. I just... The first couple of rehearsals was me punt and Flem, and we did it at Channel Ten, and I, I was—we were all edgy. When when Rick first arrived, the security guard brought him up and introduced him to me and the boss and someone else. Oh, he's Rocky Ponting, and I just remember thinking, this bloke's just called him Rocky Ponting. He, he's going to think we're freaking clowns <laughs> here at Channel Ten. You know what I mean? Like I was like, well, well, how's this bloke going to – what's he going to think of us? He's decided to join 10 rather than 9, and he's getting introduced as Rocky Ponting, and we, he's sitting down with a bloke that's never called cricket before. Um, so, again, I just sat there, and just the boss just kept reminding me, mate, you, you don't have to be there to be a cricket expert. Just let people see how Ricky is what type of personality is not. I guess of – the few strings I have to my bow, probably the best one is to be able to bring personality out of people and find out what they're all about. Hence, we can get on the Howie Games later. So I just stuck to that. I just stuck to that. And eventually, once you gain their respect, um, then things turn around. You can be more relaxed and then you can start to have a laugh with them and, you know, take it out of them a little bit and, and formulate how it's going to work. But, yeah, it took me um, – it took me a while to be convinced in my own head that I should be in the commentary box. But once that happened, probably through repetition and through being comfortable with the boys, then it, then it goes to a, a better level. You know, a lot of people, and <laughs> check out my Twitter feed. Man, There's a lot of people who still say I shouldn't be there. But we've got this far. But, yeah, it was certainly a hurdle that I had to overcome.
1: How do you cope with that sort of social media feedback? I mean, it is part of... I guess being in the media now, you have to have it and you need to keep yourself out there, but you're also going to get yeah. some negative stuff back. Do you just sort of block it out? Do you not look at it?
0: Um, oh, I don't like it. To be completely honest, it's pretty good. Like, If I get, you know, if after a big bash game, I'll probably get, I don't know, 50 tweets, if it's a, something controversial, 100 tweets. To be completely honest with you, it's just the way it is. Probably only five of them are negative. So yeah, good. I guess, you know, if you're going to read the positives, then you can cop the negatives. When everything happened with Chris Gale, there was a lot more negatives, and that sort of taught me a few lessons. But it's just part of the job, mate. You can't, you know, <laughs> you're doing your best. Again, I look at it, right, have I done what the boss wants me to do? Is he happy? Am I happy? Okay, um, if that's the case you just sort of push on but mate, there's a lot of nameless faceless people on social media it's it's the world's most negative place so i reckon if you're getting three or four five or percent as negative and the rest positive i think you're going okay but that's just part of modern life for some reason people feel they have the right just to just to give you their opinion and if they think you're Terrible, they'll let you know in no uncertain terms, but you know, what are you going to do, mate? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> really? just
1: cop copping on the chin. It sounds like your yeah, s- it. percentage is pretty good. I reckon sportsmen probably get a bit more negative stuff. Yeah, they do,
0: they do. And you, and you talk to sports people about it and, and they'll shut it down, and that, that can be a real shame because it's such a wonderful way to interact with fans. But if you know, person X is getting nothing but negativity, they shut it down, and then all their fans don't get to hear from them. Well, I'm not talking about me, I'm talking about athletes now, so you know, I, I've never really understood negativity. In general, that
1: certainly comes out in the Howie games. You're very positive in that. Um, a couple of questions, more questions about the Big Bash. Yeah, mate. With the success of it, what mm. did you guys have any idea that you were just sort of embarking on what was going to be one of the most <laughs> successful sporting competitions in the world? Did you have any nope. little inkling deep down, or
0: nope, not a clue? Uh, when we bought the rights, and I guess Fox was. They'd have to tell you, but I don't know. They probably got 150, 200,000 people. And I've never discussed this publicly before, but I sat down again with the boss, Dave Barham, and he said, "What do you think? How we? You know, we've worked on a lot of stuff." I said, "Oh, you know, if we get, you know, 400,000 average, I think it'll be pretty good. <laughs> um, 400,000 peak audience. I was, I was. It's a domestic cricket competition. That's a women's um, and, game you know, now. Well, and and he sort of said, "Well, sales so are budgeting 600," and I was like, "Oh, we could be under the pump then." Uh, and then the first night was 1.1 million and we all just sat there the next morning. I thought um, I thought he was taking the piss when the boss rang me and told me what the ratings were um, because in the past I didn't focus a great deal on ratings but I'll tell you one thing about ratings, Andrew, when you're not getting good ratings, you just say, oh yeah, I don't pay much attention to them. When they're good, everybody looks at them. Um, yeah. So I, I, I had no idea and it really hit me, just to expand that a little bit further, I, I think in the second season I had a couple of nights off and my family I had a young family I still do have a young family the pickle and stage. the big penguin yeah the pickle and the big penguin were very young and they'd go with uh Mrs Howie the beautiful delightful Mrs Howie and go up to Pambula to stay with her parents at a caravan park for three weeks and I basically wouldn't see them for three weeks but I had two nights off in a row which was unusual and I went up to Pambula. flew there and and we staying in the caravan park with Erica and the kids and my in-laws. Um, and Erica and I went out for dinner at the local pub and we walked back through the caravan park. And, you know, this is Australia in January. This is a typical beach scene. It's right next to the beach. Everyone's having their barbecues and beers and beach cricket and every single caravan or annex that I walked past had the Big Bash on. Now, people weren't necessarily watching it glued in, but they had it on when they were watching their bar, having their barbie or having a beer or bathing the kids or coming back from a surf or coming back from going fishing. The Big Bash was on in every single caravan, and that's when it you see numbers. You see 1 million, 1.2 million, 1.3 million, but when you see it on televisions, then it hit me. It was like, wow, this is um, – this has this has become a lot bigger than any of us thought it would be, and let's not forget that is due to the standard of cricket and the access that cricketers give us, and the entertainment product that Cricket Australia and the Big Bash League put on. You know, we we add to it, but we're certainly not the driving force in all that. I don't think.
1: Yeah, I think the Big Bash is not only transformed summer nights, but it's trans- transformed summer. I mean, the amount of. Young people I see in the back alleys playing cricket now has increased a lot since the big bash has been on TV every night. And I think it's amazing, it's a, it's a great success story.
0: Yeah, even even when I play cricket with my kids, um, you know, the big penguin, as you called him, um, he's five and he's right, like, okay, dad, I'm going to be the stars. Who are you going to be? It, it's not, he's not going out there to bat for Australia, and in some ways that makes me laugh in other ways, it breaks my heart because you know we grew up, you and I grew up, it was playing for Australia and that was it and that was the be all and end all. Yeah, so I think it's resonated. I have that many, I can't tell you how many people, how many blokes come up to me and say, my kids had no interest in cricket or my wife had no interest in cricket um, and some women as well come up and say, my husband had no interest in cricket but they have become family converts and it's, it just sits on, it's on in the background. Um, and there's nothing else on Menace, let's be honest. There's nothing else on at that time of year. So, But if, if one of those kids we're talking about then takes up cricket that wouldn't have, then I think it's been a success.
1: Yeah, I've been hearing a lot of whispers from England about some um, discontentment with the changes they're making to their T20 comp. And I, I just think about how I felt and how I was a bit disappointed that that acts the New South Wales Blues yep. at the time. But I was just so wrong. And I want to tell all those people in England that are, are, <laughs> are discontent. I said, just go with it because, you know, to see the amount of families and the life that the Big, Big Bash has brought to cricket in this country, uh, it's, it's just inspiring. And, um, you know, that's what I want. I want kids playing cricket. And I just hope it continues. Yeah, mate.
0: You're spot on because I was the same. I was like, well, I'm not going to support Victoria. or well, why would I care about it? Um, I couldn't agree more. I thought it was a really poor move. Shows you what little you and I know about marketing. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> and they're doing that in, in England and they're about to launch a new one in South Africa. Um, yeah, it's it's the new frontier. And still, when I, you know, I can watch a big bash game and I obviously know the players reasonably well quite a few of them so i cheer for players i still don't cheer for teams and i think a lot of people like that i think a lot of people cheer for a close result and at the start people were saying oh that's going to be the great downfall of it i don't think it is i think people want to be entertained um and they might not feel like the that they've got as much invested in the melbourne stars winning or not of your of my generation i think my kids generation have got a lot more invested in who wins but i think our generation we see a good game We're pretty happy with
1: that. Yeah, I tried to be neutral, especially last summer when I was doing this big smash cricket podcast. But deep down, I love the Sixers. I love the Magenta. I love the fact that they play at the SCG. When I went out to the Thunder, deep down, I wanted them to lose every game. So I've definitely got to work well, work on my skills of neutrality. If I continue no, no, that's to do good. this, it's good
0: that you've it's good that you've jumped on board. Someone. It's interesting what you just said to me about the SCG and the Magenta and the atmosphere. You didn't mention a player, which is brilliant because you're being rusted onto the franchise, which is important because if you're all about um, you love the Sydney Sixers because Haddon and Enrico's plays there. When Haddon retires and Enriquez goes and plays somewhere else you'll still be a Sixers man which which I, I am, think shows that through and it, through. I think that it shows that the competition's working.
1: Yeah, and how much fun is it for you to, to work on the comp? I mean, you know, you're travelling <laughs> around the country or summer you're going on some of the biggest and best cricket grounds in the country, you're interviewing stars, it's a successful product you're working with uh, great test players and what's is, is it fun for you? You know, do you have a, a good time? Because it yeah. looks fun. I think that's what people think. So
0: well, I think you've just answered your own question. <laughs> like seriously, like what you just said—you're you, traveling around, you're talking about cricket, you, you're having beers with Ricky Ponting or Viv Richards, you, you're meeting some superstars of the game, and you get to talk about it on TV and you get paid. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous. I hope Channel is not listening to this, but i you know, it, it's it, you don't want to take it for granted. But but we get a roster probably in about August, and you know, I think last year there was 35 games. Um, and is this not, roster
1: did, done around Ricky Ponting's golf game?
0: Oh, it's done around Ricky Ponting's golf game, where Ricky Ponting's dogs are running, and the fact that Ricky Ponting won't go to Western Australia, one hundred percent. That's exactly what it's based around. <laughs> um yeah, it's as much fun times ten as you think it is. It's it's more fun when we're not on telly. You know, it's like I describe it to people. It's like you know when they used to have uh, competitions on the back of a Coke can, and you know you could win this perfect dream whatever. That's what it's like. You know, I get my roster and if I'm listed for, say, 25 or 26 of the 35 games, if the boss said to me this year, you've got to do all 35 games, I'd be like, yeah, no problem. Because the 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 getting to and from the grounds can be a grind, but the rest of it is absolutely brilliant. You're sitting there talking to Ricky Ponting about cricket, um, watching the best cricketers on the planet. Um, yeah, it is the best job I've ever had. And I've had quite a few in the world of media. And I think it'd be very, very hard to beat. Um, hopefully Channel 10 retains the rights to it because if they don't, I don't know what I'm <laughs> going to do after that. But yeah, it is... As much fun as you think it is, times 10, it really is. And every time I go to the cricket, I remind myself of what I'm doing and who I'm doing it with and realise how blessed I am, and it puts a smile on my face. It's bloody brilliant, mate. Well,
1: it's good to hear that because I think a lot of people forget sometimes how lucky they are to have those opportunities. So, yep. yeah, I reckon there's a few envious uh, people around the country right now. wouldn't mind swapping uh, <laughs> shoes with you for a couple of games. Now, now tell me, with the... Um, innovations of the coverage you know they've they've, you know you've got cameras in helmets and what what's next do you think for the coverage of the big bash what's an innovation do you think they could they could add to it you know nose cam uh bat
0: cam yeah i i I don't know i think ball cam it's a good i think it's a good question i think box cam i hear the cameras i love the different cameras um like this time i think for the first time we had a a stump cam facing the other way so you can see, see the bowler coming into the bowler. You know, they're, they're not life-changing decisions, but I think the small things you make along the way, they, they slowly add up. We, we've tried a few things.
1: Yeah, what hasn't worked?
0: Well, it's just things that take time to try and explain stuff. Like, you sit next to Ricky Ponting watching a game, Big Bash cricket. He knows what's going to happen three overs before it happens, and he's very good explaining that. But when we try and present him with graphics... Um, and, and vision to support that. There's no time between balls, so you've got to realise there's not. you can't put too much innovation in it because it happens so quickly between deliveries. It's not like test cricket where you have more time. You know, Rick starts making a point about something and then that batsman gets out and, you know, the point's lost. So I'm, I'm not really answering your question. No. You. What's the next innovation? What's the next innovation?
1: Uh, yeah, haven't got one. I don't
0: know. I, I guess a, a camera in a bat at, at some point may be something they work on. You know, I, I look at the big innovations in cricket that Niner bought in with, with the with the snicko and the hotspot. Like, to me, those two add so much to the game. Whether there's more things like that, I'm probably not the right person. Well, what, to,
1: what about DRS then for the Big Bash? That was a hot topic last year, the fact that yeah, the team should have yeah. a referral. I personally think one-a-team would be a great addition to the tournament yeah, I, and add to the drama. What do
0: you think? I tend to agree with you. I think one... That's it. You get one for your 20 overs. I I think that would be a good idea, Uh, one unsuccessful one. I'm not sure it's solved too many problems in test cricket because it was in there to to prevent the howler, wasn't it? You know, we we see it now becoming anything but preventing the howler. But, yeah, I think the DRS, that's a really good suggestion, just one innings. I think
1: it does prevent the howler in test cricket most of the time. I think now we we start to split hairs about these minute little faint uh, noises on the snicker or the tiniest deviation. but I, th- I think it's, yeah, I'd like to see any T20 cricket just for the fact that we saw a couple of big games last year, decisions that were a little bit off. You know, you wouldn't mind if it's going to be on TV, have lots of people watching the ability to get the decision right.
0: And and the reason they 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 shy away from that is because they want it to be done in the three hours. They don't want you and your family having to be up at quarter 11, 11 o'clock, the game dragging on. You know, I know, I've done games in the West Indies that... I did a game in the Caribbean that they had no rain rule, mate, and we went on air at 7.30. I saw that one. But, oh mate, we finished at <laughs> quarter to five in the morning. I remember um, that one. I tell you, we're some real flat units in the commentary box that night. I give you the tip, let alone the players out there. So <laughs> I, I can understand why they resist those things, but um, I don't have a better suggestion than that, than your suggestion about one or us. I think that I think that's a really good idea, but you only get one, and if you, as soon as you get it wrong, you're done.
1: Yeah, now, I had Lisa Stelaker on the show, and I said to her that I think... The, the big bash is moving past the stage where we should mic up players, and I think it's probably something they should look at taking away uh, I think you know the competition's getting so serious and people you know really care who wins the comp and there's so much at stake that do we want players being distracted and you know we saw Kevin Peterson got fined for making comments while he was on the field and you know it's <laughs> unfair on him because your adrenaline's rushing you know you've just had a decision go against you it's hard to sort of filter out your feelings I think it's something maybe that they need to look at
0: what at least reckon
1: she said I was being an old fuddy-duddy
0: yeah, I'm in, I'm in Lisa's camp. I, I, I couldn't disagree with you less. Um, I think More? Uh, yeah, sorry, I couldn't disagree with you more. I think, you know, we had a few issues this year that were caused by me when, when I spoke to Hodge on field, which was a bloody stupid thing to do. And I hope I haven't put the whole thing in jeopardy with that. I know I haven't put the whole thing in jeopardy, but, but that was really, really foolish on my behalf, which caused us some dramas. But I, I think as a general rule, you've got to get the right player. Like, if you have a Brad Hodge... Um, talking about what's going on. To me, when, when actually we don't ask him questions, when he had the mic on a couple of times last year and he just spoke through and over, that was, they were my favourite overs of the entire big bash. So I think he can bring a lot. I, 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 I'm with you. I don't think KP should have got fined for what he said because he was opening his access up and showing us what was happening on the field. And I think if, if you're going to take that type of coverage, you have to expect some things to come out that you're not going to necessarily agree with. So I'm with you. I don't think he should have been fined. But... I think it it brings viewers so much into what happens in the game to the point, mate, I'd like to see it in Test Cricket. I've had this discussion with Gilly. Um, uh, and, mate, I'm a traditionalist. Don't <laughs> get me wrong. Like I, you know, At the end of the day, I'd probably rather watch Test Cricket than any other cricket. Um, would have been good on I that
1: I'd Indian series it, to have a few players marked up.
0: Well, mate, it, it would have been amazing. But, you know, I, I've worked on other sports. I, I think golfers should do it as well. Uh, so, yeah, mate, I think they should stick with that. I think we need to be... I'm just in the minority on this one. Uh, that's all right, mate. You know, you've got to what, have your opinion. What um, about
1: yeah. when you said that to Hodgie? Did you know, like, I've said a lot of things, and as the words come out, I just go, why did I say that? Did you think yep. at the time when you said it, oh,
0: oh my God, I might have just put my foot in it? Or... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, mate. You, you, I've done enough sport to... And, you know, there's... If... I'll get you to ask me another question in a minute because I don't want to use it as an excuse. But um, it was the absolutely wrong thing to say. And when I was halfway through it, I thought, shit, I've said the wrong thing here. Um, This is really, really bad. And this is going to cause me major grief. You know, for those that weren't aware what we're talking about, um, Brad Hodge was the captain. uh, Shane Watson was batting. And our stats guy, Laurie Colliver, said... uh, On the coverage, I think, I don't think it was just in my ear, I think he said on the coverage that of the last nine balls um, that Watson had faced from Lachlan, he'd been out twice, which I relayed that information to Hodgie, which was stupid. Um, And then Hodgie, because he is an entertainer and because him and I know each other so well, he was joking around saying, I better bring him on the next over. Now, you talked to Brad about this isolated from the incident. Don't get me wrong, I said the wrong thing, it was the wrong thing to say and I got my fair whack and so I should have. Brad was always going to bring Ben Lachlan on the next over. If you look back, when Brad rolls Ben Lachlan, it's pretty much he brings him on in the fifth over, which is what we're about to come into. So Brad was always going to do that. But the fact that he played up to my stupidity made it more of an incident than it was going to be. So, yeah, it, it was the wrong thing to say. But you can't blame the technology for that you can only blame the fool in the commentary box that asked the question
1: well fair enough uh, i guess it, it, or we all say things we regret and in that situation uh, when you with you know people like laurie giving you those stats did you get all that stuff constantly throughout the night and is it up to you to sort of work out what you want to pass on to the viewer
0: yeah, it is, and that, and that was the, the thing I was going to bring up with you. That I, I would love the audience at some point to be able to hear what happens in my ears during a big bash game. The first big bash game we did, it, I was absolutely cooked at the end of it. I, I'd done a lot of sports television prior to that, and that was the three most. The first hour was the most intense thing I had ever done. You, you have. At any particular time, you have the director telling you what replay is going to be replayed. You have the producer telling you you've got to plug, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. <laughs> you have the DA telling you you've got one ball to go before you've got to throw to the overbreak. You have got the statistician telling you that he's bowled the last 33 deliveries for 19 runs and a couple other people in year at any time. So that, that, and that's while you are commentating Um, half the time when you're talking. So it is an extremely, extremely busy environment in your ears and it takes a long time to be able to filter what you need to deal with and what you don't need to deal with and it's not in any way an excuse for why sometimes you say the wrong thing but there's so much going on and you imagine in a typical big bash game what there's 40 overs there's 240 balls i probably call typically 200 of them so if i say 199 of them right but get one of them wrong bang Everyone lets you know about it, and that's just the way it goes. It's a
1: fast-paced environment, the big bash, You know, I so saw behind the scenes, you know, you're running around from, you know, as soon as there's an end of an over, you've got to run down to the field. And, you know, it's a busy environment, so it's a hectic night of viewing and working on.
0: Yeah, it's extremely hectic, but that's what makes it fun, mate. Yeah, that's live TV. That's the best thing about it. But it's not hectic that, you know, it's not that hectic that Ricky Ponting, the great man, can still tell you exactly where Kevin Peters is going to hit the next ball while he was sitting there on his phone watching a dog race from Wagga alongside Mark War. They still have that ability to split their minds, so I admire that. The fact they can watch greyhounds running around while commentating on a game of cricket, I think, is an extraordinary ability. <laughs> Yeah,
1: well, the Big Bash is just amazing to watch, amazing to uh, go to. So thanks for all your amazing work on that. Is there any one memory you've got from the Big Bash so far? In the many seasons you've done, is there one memory that you sticks out to you that you want to share with the listeners?
0: Well, there's two, one from on-air and one from off-air. I think when we were up in Canberra um, when the Sixers were playing the Scorchers and Brett Lee was bowling his final over, and, and I was calling the majority of that alongside Phlegm. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, it was not just the who was going to win the big bash. It was, right, this is the last professional over of Brett Lee's career. Um, there was that, there was runouts. He was bowling blokes. Um, they were coming from the clouds, the sixes. And Moses Ricas wasn't able to complete the runout. And somehow I managed to get some semi-appropriate words around that. that. That was my highlight on the cricket field, off the cricket field, any time with Viv Richards is just, you know, when, when you finish a game of cricket and the great man is in the car beside you and he just says, are we? Are we? Should we go and have a ROM, are we? Let's have a bit of a ROM <laughs> and a bit of a chat. And you go, hey, mate, you could, man, you, you could be the tightest man You could be the man in Australia and if Viv wants to sit in the bar for nine hours, you sit in the bar for nine hours. But I recall, men, as leaving the Gabba one night with Viv and Mel McLaughlin probably three years ago. Mel will hate me telling this story. Um, and we get down to the cars and there's always blokes lined up to get Punter's autograph or Gilly's or Viv's autograph with their bats and uh, this guy came up and it was me, Viv and Mel and he comes up and Viv sort of half stops and he's like, oh, guys, 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 Mel, can I have your autograph? And I was <laughs> like, are you, I actually said to him, are you freaking <laughs> serious? You've got Sir Isaac Vivian Alexander Richards, Mel, wonderful at a job, great girl, but mate, Get your priorities right.
1: So Viv Richards, hanging out with Viv is one of your off-field highlights
0: it's the mate. It's I. don't. I, not just in the big bash. I think in life, mate, having a run with you, Richards. How good?
1: <laughs> yeah, how good is that? Um, well, now to another area of mutual interest, which is podcasting. And for a start, I yep. want to say that I was really, really happy when you started your podcast, The How We Games, because Thank I you. thought the medium in Australia needed someone with some high profile that could actually get. In a room with you know Ricky Ponting and Adam Gilchrist and all these great sportsmen from, from other sports that would spend an hour and tell their story, I think it takes a lot to be able to convince them to do it and open up. Um, so thank you for doing that. I think it's fantastic for the medium.
0: Yeah, it was. It came about from the Grand Prix last year, so the 2016 Grand Prix. And I've covered that. My first ever role, my first ever job was working on the Formula 1 tour. So I, I got a pretty decent handle on, I sort of spent three or four years going to all the races. So since TENS had it, I've worked on it a lot. And for whatever reason, I've developed a reasonable on-air relationship with Lewis Hamilton. I'm not saying we're mates, but he's pretty warm and open and generous in interviews we do. Are you as good of friends
1: him. with him as you are with Viv Richards?
0: No, no, okay, I'm, so I'm, still saying tight. Tight. I'm saying wow. me and Viv tight. Tight. me and Viv tight. Me and Lewis are just know each other professionally. I would say. <laughs> um, uh, uh, yeah. No, Viv, I'm not that tight with him, but um, <laughs> <laughs> I've got his number in my phone, which gives me a great thrill. But anyway, yeah. Uh, yeah so I sat down with Lewis, and, and he was really good. And I think we meant to have about five minutes, and I think it went for about twenty-five minutes. And he was really warm and open. And he was the reigning Formula One world champion at that point of view. And we we're on air on Channel 10 across the, the entire Friday, Saturday, Sunday for probably 29 or 30 hours. So I had a you know 25-minute interview with Viv Richards and it was originally cut down to four minutes and I think I convinced the powers that be to make it run seven minutes, which is a long time on commercial television and I was really flat that we're on air all this time and the world champion had spoke all these things about his love of fashion and surfing and music, and you know we spoke about cars, but that that wasn't really what I was interested in with him because he's such a fascinating character. So I walked away from that Grand Prix thinking, wow, there's a good twenty minutes of that interview with Lewis Hamilton that no one will ever see due to the constraints of commercial television. Um, I work a lot for on Triple the chopping M. room floor. Well, yeah, and, and it never sees the light of day, mate. And I, I work a lot for Triple M on the radio, and we'll 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 get, you know mark war on and we have four minutes to chat with him and then we have to go to a a song that's not a criticism of those mediums that's just what those mediums are and i was talking to it about a mate he said mate you should do podcasts with these people and i I, this is you know this is april last year i didn't know what a podcast was and he explained it to me and, and that's sort of where the idea came from as far as the howie games i certainly had no I didn't realize how many people I've had the pleasure of working with um, over the years, which makes it a lot easier when you have personal relationships with these people. But, but the Lewis Hamilton is the one I need to thank. The fact that his interview hit the chopping room floor that um, bore the Howie Games.
1: And, and what do you like about the podcasting medium?
0: That there's no ad breaks, that there's no songs you have to throw to, that there's no one in your ear telling you what's up next, that you don't have to follow any direction, that you can just sit down and chat with someone with no agendas, no direction, no need to push and prod and look for negativity or headlines. It, whenever I email someone that I'm trying to do an episode with, I, I explain all that and I'm like, this is not about controversy or headlines. Just imagine it's you and me sitting down having a chat over a beer or a cup of tea in the pub and we're just having a chat about your life. I think it's um, it's funny, men, because this is what, radio plays in 1930s were what people used to listen to on the radio. Now people are listening to radio plays 90 years later and saying, oh, this is amazing, this new type of thing called a podcast. It's really just a radio play that that was around 90 years ago. But I, I think our lives have become so ingrained to short, sharp, get a minute here, get a minute there, look at it on your tablet, look at the next thing, watch the cricket while you watch the surfing and listen to the tennis all at the same time. But I think there's part of the community that likes to go back to An honest, deep, involved, long conversation. And to be able to sit there and chat with these people that you've looked up to or that you've been motivated or inspired by their achievements, it's wonderful. It really is. Really, I walk away from them just bursting with joy often that I've got to sit down with these people and explore their lives with them. It's It's a tremendous privilege, I think.
1: You've had an amazing guest list, just about a who's who of Australian sport. Well, I you just wait till to
0: series too, mate. You wait to yeah, series Yeah, I've been saying it.
1: it's coming. <laughs> There's a few in the can. I hear. just qu- back to one thing about the medium, and yep. the one thing I think that is important to podcasting is that people make a choice. They want to hear, you know, an interview with a sportsman or or a cricket podcast or whatever it is. And so I think you know people actively making that choice to, to listen to it. It's a bit different to, you know, you turn on the radio and it's just whatever's there or mm. you turn on the TV when you get home and it's what's in front of you. I think that choice is important to the process, the, the investment of the listener into what's about to happen because, you know, some of these conversations, that, that you really have to get into them, that, that you get to know someone. It's not like, as you say, it's just chopped down into the, 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 mm. the highlight sort of thing.
0: Yeah, I, and, and when I said it's a privilege to speak to these people, for anyone that has spent one minute listening to any of my podcasts, I, I think, and I don't say this glibly, I thank them from the bottom of my heart because it, it, there is a million things they could be doing with their time. And if they're narrowing it down, they want to listen to podcasts and then they select to listen to my podcast or, or your podcast. I think it's, it's, you need to, uh, it fills me with joy that people would give me some of their time to, to have a chat and have something for them to listen to. So um it, it's a privilege to have the guests and it's a privilege that people will listen but I, I i found listening to various podcasts that i become attached to the person hosting the podcast which has been fantastic because i'll listen to someone interviewing Thank you exactly Menace. so i i, <laughs> I will listen uh, if you had a varied podcast that wasn't just about cricket for example i would listen to you because you had a interview with lisa stelaker and then i'd listen to one that you had with mel jones and i'd think yeah these are great guests and then you've got one with a quantum physicist i am never going to sit and listen to a quantum physicist physicist i can't even say the word on my own but because i'm starting to develop an affinity to you and the way you go about it and i enjoy the way you do it it opens up my mind to all these other topics that i would never listen to so i really hope with the Howie Games. There's two episodes on there on Series 1. There's 24 episodes. There's two episodes that the majority of sporting fans wouldn't have heard of those two guests. Those two guests are my favourite two episodes. When anyone says which ones you should listen to, I say a guy called Jake Edwards or a guy called Jack Jones, and people say, who are those? Who are those blokes? I really hope that somewhere along the line there's enough people that enjoy listening to the way we go about the podcast that it won't matter who the guest is. They will listen anyway. And that might be pie in the sky stuff. They they might just think, well, I know Ricky Ponting, so i only listen to Ricky Ponting. But I hope the people that listen to Ricky Ponting or Adam Gilchrist and think, oh, that was a nice interview, they will then go and listen to some of the less high profile guests. Because as I said, those two uh, are my two favourite podcasts from the first series. Yeah, well, I,
1: I've got a favourite podcast from. I didn't listen to every episode of the first season, but most of them. Have you listened to really Jack
0: s- Jones or Jake Edwards?
1: No, not really. There I don't want go. to lie the, to you, Howie. Well,
0: well, that's what I'm saying. You need to go and listen to those I two. listen to
1: all the cricketing, all the cricketers, plus a mm-hmm. few others. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, you know, there's a certain intimacy to podcasting where, there is. where it feel as a listener, you feel like you're eavesdropping ease on a, a conversation between two people. And I thought Ricky Pontings was maybe the best example of the cricketers from the first season of, of where you really felt a sense of intimacy in that conversation uh, and I found it a fascinating one. I sort of saw Ricky when he was a really young man coming mm. through the scenes, you know, 16, 17, I was around the Australian cricket team and, uh, you know, he was a young man and I thought, my impression was he sort of closed off, he was quick ascendancy to the Australian team and then he sort of shut off a little bit, you know, as he would put up a barrier but that podcast really just, really opened him up. It was just an amazing listen. Well done.
0: Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. That um that episode with Rick re- was recorded at the Pullman Hotel at out near Homebush, out at Spotless Stadium. We were going to do a Thunder game, and you're he, he, spot on. But that comes back to what I was telling you about. The boss said my job was to do was to show people that Ricky Ponding's a normal bloke that loves a beer and a Barbie, and loves his kids and his missus, and you know he he loves playing golf and betting on greyhounds. That that's what he is. He's just a knockabout bloke. So hopefully, people saw that in that podcast that he wasn't just a wonderful batsman. And I guess the the thing that everyone refers to about that podcast is when Rick starts talking about his young bloke, Fletch who ended up in the Royal children's hospital um, really crook. And it took me by complete surprise and, and, and it took Rick by complete surprise as well, as he said on the podcast and, at the end of the podcast, that he'd talked about Fletch before, maybe not in public, um, and he started crying. And the the last thing I expected before we were going to do a game of Big Bash cricket sitting in a hotel was Rick sitting in front of me crying. Um, And I know him as a mate now, so it it upset me as well. There's actually – that's the only podcast where I've cut anything out because in the interim of that period, Rick had to get up and just compose himself and – we both decided that it was so raw that we were going to cut a little bit of it out. Um, you, you, which you wouldn't realise listening. Um, I'm sure you didn't realise we did cut some out, but I think you still get the emotion of what. I was too busy
1: crying about. to notice anything. Yeah, and mate, I,
0: I, I was I was the same because it's it's it all of a sudden it's not Ricky Ponting, it's a mate sitting across from you, opening his heart and soul to what it was like to being in hospital, thinking his young son might not survive, and that's not Ricky Ponting the cricketer, that's Ricky Ponting the dad. Um, so when you're talking about the intimacy of a podcast absolutely they are extremely intimate and and I didn't expect Rick Rick to go down that path I don't don't think he really did but I guess if your guest is comfortable and happy to expose themselves well all you can do is thank your guest for their openness and honesty yeah I it it still um, upsets me a bit now to think of what it was like in that hotel room and you know anyone with young kids any kids will will realize that once you have children your life and the way you view life and the way you view the health of children is a completely different thing so if there's a dad sitting across from you which is what he was in that situation telling you you know that he thought his young son was going to die it's you know uh, anyone
1: heart-wrenching yeah it
0: is and anyone will get upset by that i guess
1: um you've sort of talked about this and alluded to the way your style of inter- interviewing is um that you try and draw the informa- information out of subjects and and you know how do, how do you approach a, when you're writing the questions for your interviews because i often think you do a really good job of sort of i wouldn't say boiling someone down but cutting to the core of someone how, how do you do that do you, do you sit back and you know reflect on it beforehand how, how do you sort of find that
0: well I, I haven't written a question for an interview for Ten years now, I reckon, because once you have the confidence to actually listen to someone, manners, then you can react in a conversation. So, so you know, there's nothing worse when you're having a conversation with someone in a pub, for example, and you're saying something and they're blatantly not listening to you and then they're just going to give their point of view and it's not a conversation. It's just a series of facts blurted out. A conversation is when you're talking to me and I'm listening to what you're asking me and I'm responding to that, and then I listen to what you're saying, and I respond off your response. That's a true conversation. So I don't have I don't have a question for any interview I ever do. I'll have a couple of general themes in my head. If it's someone that makes me a bit edgy, I'll probably have the first question in my head. But in a podcast, I'll I'll read about people. I'll, I'll read their book. I'll read online about them, and I, I have a. One of the few skills I do have is that once I read something, it sticks in my head. So I, I just I have in my mind a general theme. Um, and my podcasts are pretty basic. Basically, we start at the start of your first memory of playing cricket to where we're sitting in this room now, or your first memory of playing soccer. So personally, and, and I know everyone does it differently, when I see people with written questions, questions written down in front of them interviewing someone, I'm like, well, you, even then, man, you're looking down, so you're not looking at them. So you're not engaging with that person when you go to look at your How questions. How do you know what I'm looking at? I'm <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I don't mean you. I mean, oh, like I, in television, etc., or in a room. If you're not looking someone in the eye, uh, you get lost in the conversation. So I, I just try and follow a general theme rather than specific questions. But the risk is sometimes I come away from them and think, "Oh, I can't believe I didn't ask them about that," or that completely slipped my mind. But for the the oca- occasions that happens, I prefer that the fact that I walked away with a genuine conversation rather than a series of questions and a series of answers.
1: Well, I've got written down here. Are there any questions you wish you'd asked the previous guests? Is there any you've come out and gone? Oh God, I can't believe I missed, missed that.
0: Yeah, there, there will be a few. I can't remember any specifically. There, there will be a few, but it's like anything. It's, it's like that Lewis Hamilton interview that I got, that I was telling you about, you, you didn't see the 20 minutes they hit the cutting room floor, so you don't think you missed anything. If I don't ask the question, unless it's a really obvious one, then then the listener probably doesn't realise anyway. It might sit with me for half an hour, but, yeah, it, 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 you know, that, that's the risk you take trying to do it the way I do, which I, I personally think is the right way to do it because I, I think there's too much in them. I think media too much. Think about what they're going to say and then you say to me, oh, Howie, what's it like working on the Big Bash? and I give you my answer, and you've got your next question ready, and I say, oh, but the reason that it motivated me because my grandma died on the first day. And that's an extreme example, which didn't happen, but then going to your next yeah. question is, oh, what's it like working with Ricky Ponting? You haven't listened to what I've said, so you've lost the opportunity to have an interesting conversation because you figured out what you already want to say rather than actually listen to the person. So anyway, that's the way I go about it, right or wrong. People will disagree. No,
1: very interesting. It certainly works for the Howie Games. I mean, you do... Well, let- I want to go back to the beginning of the Howie Games and just chat about a few interviews we've done with cricketers to end this podcast, a little bit of a review of the Howie Games with Howie. (laughs) Because I'm sure a lot of people who are thinking about going back, I really recommend all of them, but especially on the cricketers. And you started off with Adam Gilchrist as the very first Howie Games.
0: Yep which was the second, that was the second episode I recorded, the first, so that, that was the first episode I launched. The first episode I actually did was with Dennis Cometti, but Gilly was the second actual interview we did. But as you said, it was it was episode one.
1: I thought it was a great start, and I thought it helped in that episode how introspective Gilly is. Mm-hmm. Someone has that ability to reflect on his own story. And, again, you just sort of brought him along, and he told some great stories. But my favourite is the one where he, he talked about his uh, shenanigans in the Cricket World Cup of 2007. So yes. <laughs> I reckon people should go back and listen to that one because that's a very funny story.
0: Basically, to cut a long story short, Gillard had a child and wanted to get on the piss and his teammates were saying, well, you need to start worrying about the cricket. And he was like, Well oh, please, just one more night, one more night. But that's Gilly. Gilly. um a wonderful sportsman and a wonderful operator at the bar. He has no peer as far as that goes in life that I've ever met.
1: Yeah, uh, my embarrassing Adam Gilchrist story is I was in a bar with him in England in the 99 World Cup yep. and I thought it would be my, <laughs> a few pints later I thought I'd tell him how to bat on English wickets <laughs> and uh, I just, like maybe what was with happening with, with Hodgie, as soon as the words were coming out I just wanted to run. <laughs> get out of but
0: I'm, I'm sure Gilly smiled and said, oh, good on you, mate. And sent yeah, you yeah he way. really he would nice. Have been, he's, he's the world's nicest man. He is the world's nicest man.
1: Uh, next one about a cricketer that really interests me was Dean Jones. Now, yep. I think, like you, I was a massive fan of Dino growing <laughs> up. And I thought one – I mean, it was a great podcast. He told his stories. But I thought the one thing that really interests me was when you tried to find out why Dean Jones was dropped because – it's just a mystery. Everyone sort of wonders why a man with an average of almost fifty would just yep. get left out. And you really tried to ask him about that, and he said that you know he had one bad net in the gabba, and Simo said that's it. Damien Martin's playing.
0: Yeah, um, I, I don't think I don't believe that answer. But um... yeah, I, I don't. I, I'm not sure he could really. You know, there was there was all obviously rumours about Dino and innuendo, and it was a long time ago. Yeah, I don't think he fully knows well in himself why why that happened. I think his general theory was that Marto was going to be a great young batsman and they wanted to get him in. And you look at what he did, Damien, and he was a superstar. So I, I don't know whether the selector's made the right decision or not. But
1: I think the fact that you tried to answer that because, there's, you know, I, you know, I've spent 20, 30 years trying to come to grips with that decision. You yeah, know, I, I actually am yeah. a proud New South Wales supporter and I actually bought a, a signed Victorian cap uh, Dean Jones signed Victorian cap because I loved him so much. Um, yeah, he's a star. I just think the one thing that stands out for me is I saw Dino having dinner in the MCG before a Big Bash game last summer, and he walked into the sort of media area and no shoes on. Everybody else wouldn't dare to walk <laughs> around there. but He's walking around bare feet, shorts. So he is a legend. There's no doubt about it, and I, people should go and listen to that one.
0: He rolls to the beat of his own drum too, um, which – I do not like in modern media when people are criticised for being different because we will sit there in all sorts of forums and say, oh, why are these athletes so boring? And then an athlete like a Dino or a Glenn Maxwell, there's plenty of examples out there, stick their head up and show a bit of personality and actually say what they think and they get whacked. Don't complain about it. Enjoy it take it on. It's what, you know, I love the American athletes. I love them when they come off the park and say, rather than oh, I was the team and the structures and process. I love it when they say oh, I was brilliant today, or it was all about me, or I'm the reason we won. I love that. A lot of people don't, but I love, the individuality and the showmanship of sports people, men and women.
1: Yeah, you you talked about in the interview with Michael Clark when he bought his uh, Maserati or something when he was a young kid, hmm. and you talked to him about in America, you know, every athlete goes out and buys a car like that. Yeah, but in Australia, that, we've got that exact
0: this, discussion, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and uh, I think that was a really interesting way of viewing it. i never thought about it like that. That in Australia we sort of we criticise people for that, but you know, you look across in America, and it is just the, what happens when you get you know that sort of money you go, you sh- and you should do it god you should follow your dreams so i thought that was a really interesting take on our perceptions of clark when you brought that up because so many people were quick to criticize
0: but why do we criticize him for that why do we criticize about being successful and exactly. i'm not sure if you've listened to the greg norman episode and we sort of had a philosophical discussion i think i raised it with him that the only thing i don't like about australia and australians is i've seen the world nine times over and this is undoubtedly the best place to live with the best people Um, I don't understand the tall poppy syndrome and I don't understand if Michael Clark was in America, everyone pushes you up in America. Whereas in Australia, people push you down. This is a kid from the Western suburbs. Who's come from not much working class family, his ability and his talent and his hard work and his desire and determination has got him into a situation where he could buy a Maserati, as if we wouldn't all love that. Yeah, of course. So rather than say, oh, we'd love it, but, you know, he can't have one, pump him up. Good on you, Michael. Get out there. You've got a model girlfriend. You know, who wouldn't want that in life? If it was you or me, we'd be doing it if he we were in that situation due to our talent and hard work. So why shouldn't he? I've never understood that tall poppy syndrome.
1: I think that example of the Clark interview really does sum up the Howie games that you look for something in some, so, something about someone that maybe we, it's not immediately apparent to the listener. And, you know, in all of them, and we won't go through all of them, but Brad Hodge, you know, you really sort of talk about the disappointment of just missing out on your dreams and mm. with Brendan McCullum, you know, how New Zealand found its identity as a cricket team. So I reckon if the listeners haven't already done so, they should go back <laughs> and download all these Howie games and listen to them.
0: Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, I think to round out this discussion, people will sometimes say to me, why didn't you ask Michael Clark about Lara Bingle? Or I've done an episode with Cadell Evans coming up, and they'll say, why didn't you ask me about Lance and drugs? And I I sat down. Cadell is a good example. Same with Michael. I sat down with Michael at the start, and I said, Matt, I'm not going to ask you anything about ex-girlfriends. I'm not going to ask you anything about... You know diamond rings, and I said to Cadell at the start before we recorded, mate, I'm not going to ask you anything about drugs. I'm not going to ask you anything about Lance Armstrong. And people, some people will think, from a true journalistic point of view, well, you, you're not asking the stuff we want to know. I don't see it like that at all. I see it completely the opposite. And and, you, and Michael sat there and he's like, oh beauty, right, let's get into it. And he was immediately open. And Cadell, you could see the weight off his shoulders. He's like, he actually said, really, you're not going to ask me anything about Lance? I said, no, mate, um, I'm, I'm not here to talk about drugs and etc i'm here to talk about you and your cycling journey if someone and i think this is something i'm quite passionate about i don't want to bang on about it but if someone is going to give me their time for free Cadell evans michael clark kevin peterson doesn't matter who it is high profile busy people if they're going to give me their time for an hour an hour and 20 minutes why would i be so rude to ask them a series of really negative questions They've all got stories to tell. That's the approach I'd prefer to take. I'd rather to inspire the audience, not give the audience gossip. I'd rather the audience be uplifted, not give the audience rumour. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty strong on that.
1: Well, I can tell you from a listener's point of view that that approach is actually in some ways more revealing about the subject, because if you go hard at them, they might close up. But I think the Clark and the Kevin Peterson, two really prickly characters, I think, sorry, that... those interviews did reveal a lot about them and if you sort of analyze it and look at the way they approach things you can draw your own conclusions from it you didn't need to ask them about the interpersonal relationships to to sort of get that information
0: well it's a bit old and tired like i I think again it it comes back to what we're talking about it going into it with no preconceived ideas if you had no idea who michael clark was and you listen to that podcast, you will come away thinking, she's a lovely, warm, friendly bloke that's really worked his way up and had a crack in life. Well, I reckon that's what Michael Clark is. He's not all the headlines, etc. KP, uh, I I don't think I did a very good job of the interview with KP. I, I didn't manage to steer him quite as much in areas I would have liked to because he's such a strong character. He, he, he does what he wants in that interview and what he wants to do in life. But,
1: yeah, I think um, – you, there was some empathy drawn of, of KP of his early years where it was so hard for him yep. moving from South Africa to England. And, you know, you start to understand why he might be the way he is. I thought, you know, you didn't have to ask him about it. It just sort of came out.
0: Empathy is a beautiful word, I reckon, menes because if I think that's the key to any interview, being empathetic with people, understanding where they've come from. And you're relating to the fact that he, he left South Africa due to... Um, quota. Issues with his cricket and with the quota and the race system over there. He went to England. If he'd had his choice, he would have played in South Africa, but he couldn't really. So he went to England. He came back to South Africa and he was, you know, he was called everything under the sun. Um, He was pilloried by his own people, by his own country. That's going to be pretty hard to handle. And I'm sure that did shape him. I'm sure that shaped him. So I think empathy, which is not a great deal of in the world, if you can be empathetic in an interview with someone and really try and understand what they went through, then they can be quite revealing with you. I think the word you used, empathy, is a wonderful, wonderful word to describe what we should be doing. Yeah, and when I
1: was you know listening to your podcast and thinking about this, that's one quality of yours that does shine through. And why I asked you about where that quality in you came from to sort of go back to the beginning of, mm. you know, that sort of, grounding or that moral compass that deep down you know your family wherever it's come from it certainly comes through in your interviews
0: thank you i appreciate it i I hope so i hope so
1: (laughs) good well howie thank you so much for your time as we've discussed on this interview you've given up loads of your time to talk to us but what's next for howie tell us about the howie game season two and what the future brings for Mark Howard?
0: Yeah, I don't know. That's a really good question. There's never been any great plan, um, and no plan has worked reasonably well to this point. I've got enough to send my kids to school and um, put food on the table, so I think we'll just keep sort of wandering along. Obviously, it's going to be a big issue what happens with the cricket rights at Channel 10. If we lose the cricket rights, I may end up just surfing on a beach in Costa Rica, (laughs) sending out Howie Games from there. Um, The Howie Games will come back at the end of May. Um, I think we've already got... 11 episodes in the can um, I won't tell you who those episodes are But there's a couple of them that uh, Really rock me to the core actually Some of the stuff people have talked about Which I'm extremely privileged Yeah, they have and uh, So keep an eye out for them at the end of May um, uh, There's all sorts of people Some very high profile people uh, So really looking forward to that And mate, what happens from here at the moment It's AFL, AFL, AFL on Triple M And then we'll do the Test Cricket on Triple M And the Big Bash ring me uh this time in a year and you know it might be yeah sitting on a beach in costa rica figuring out um how far i can make my meager resources last but we'll see how <laughs> we go we'll see how we go but that
1: sounds pretty good sort of sums you up sitting on a beach surfing yeah picking a big penguin running around Yeah, that's
0: it that's it but mate, this is how we... I, I hope people got this far um as i said i've never done it this side of it but um you've done a, a really good job from my point of view and good luck with all the podcasts going forward and Hopefully you roll out your Big Bash one again and, and keep this one ticking over because it, it, it's a it's a good one, mate. So you should just keep ticking away and um, I hope you get some wonderful guests and I hope you can show them some empathy from here on in.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, Howie, thanks so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. And I know the listeners really appreciate your insights and taking us behind the scenes of the Big Bash and the Howie games. And good luck with uh, everything. Cool. Cheers. Peace. Well, listeners, thanks again for downloading and listening to the show, and I'll be back with the next edition of the Autumn Series, and my guest will be Jared Kimber. What a marvellous stroke. He's played no better shot than that in the whole of this series.